Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. Thank you for joining us. We hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and maybe even entertain you a little as we go. First things first, I, I want to kind of talk a little bit about what's coming up in our Bible reading plan and then again into the new year, because if you can believe it, you've only got a hair over a month left before you will have read the entire Bible in one year. So good for you. Good for you. That's a, I, this is something that really most Christians will never actually do. And I, you know, like I said around this time last year, I think this is such a valuable exercise for us to actually read the whole book in a year's time. By the way, I know people who will try it, uh, in much shorter period of time, like every three months, I'll try and read through the whole thing. Uh, don't do that. <laughs> there is value in reading the whole thing because you do need to see the Bible as a comprehensive, integrated whole. Because it is. You cannot take any one book and lift it out of the Bible, read it on its own, without looking at anything else in Scripture, and then expect to understand what it's saying. This is particularly true of the New Testament. There is no New Testament book at all that makes any sense except for in the context of the Old Testament. If you took the New this is why I don't ever, by the way, I don't buy those Bibles that are just the New Testament. I don't like giving those out. I don't encourage people to buy them. I think those are terrible uh, because you cannot understand. The New Testament does not stand on its own. It makes no sense on its own. You need the whole thing. Because all of the New Testament authors are relying on the Old Testament. And for the first 500 years or so of, of the church's existence, the only scripture was the Old Testament. The Gospels were not yet considered scripture. The, the various letters of Paul, um, none of them were considered scripture yet. People had copies of them and they read them, but they based all their theology and doctrine on the Old Testament. Which means, by the way, the Old Testament actually is sufficient for, for understanding the work of Jesus. You can, you can, you need the Gospels to tell the story of what Jesus did. But that goes to show you how essential it is that Christians read the Old Testament and understand it and study it just as much as the New Testament. And you see... In, in the modern church, a lot of really bad theology, really bad teaching rising up when people focus on the New Testament to, to the exclusion of the Old Testament. Um, that's, that's particularly true. It, it, it works. This happens with conservative and liberal churches, by the way. I mean, it, you, you tend to see it in, in conservative churches. Um, you get this weird thing where... Um, Well, the prosperity gospel kind of comes out of this. Um, some of the the more extreme conservative evangelical teaching, believe it or not, relates to this. There's a tendency in a lot of uh, southern evangelical conservatives, especially, but but conservative evangelical churches everywhere, actually to um, to really focus on Paul's letters and not even pay that much attention to what's in the gospels, um, except as a nice story. Uh, whereas the Gospels really contain a lot of theology. But again, if you aren't reading the Old Testament, that theology won't make sense. And 
uh, you see it on the on the progressive side with a lot of theology too, and, and that's where a lot of the whole um, refusal to acknowledge even the existence of sin in some places comes in. The the refusal to deal with the 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 judgment of God, with the reality of evil. You get a lot of that on the progressive end when you focus on the New Testament to the exclusion of the Old Testament. So you need the whole thing as an integrated whole. You have to read the whole book. You won't understand what Jesus is doing in the gospel without the Old Testament because Jesus certainly understood what he was doing in the context of the Torah and the story of Israel. And the Bible as a whole is a story. It's not a textbook. It's not a history book. It's not a rule book. It's a story. It is the story of how God saves his people. The story of, of uh, how God's creation project went off the rails, went off track, and now God is bringing it back. It's the story of Israel, and of course it's the story of, of us. And so we have to read it as a story. But if we're going to read it as a story, well, that means we have to actually read the whole thing. And it's a story in five acts. Act one is creation. Act two is the fall. Act three is the story of Israel as a nation, which means from about Genesis 4 all the way up to the Gospels is Act 3. It's the longest act. Act 4 is Jesus, the Gospels. And then Act 5 begins with the book of Acts and actually continues on through the present day. We're still part of the story. So it's good you've read the whole thing in a year. It's good that we're close to finishing it. We're going to continue doing uh, church-wide Bible reading plans next year. And we will do sort of the, sim- the same thing we've done this year where, where uh, whatever you are reading during the week, that's what I'll be preaching on on Sundays. We'll do some teaching. through. We'll, we'll keep the podcast up because it seems pretty popular. Um, but instead of trying to do the whole Bible in a year again, we will we'll, we'll do – I've already got the reading plans picked out actually uh, from January through the end of November of next year. So we'll start with um, with 60 days through the Gospels all four Gospels. Then in the uh, nine days or so leading up to Easter, we're going to focus on just the Gospel of Mark. So we'll have already read it, but we're going to go back again and read it slowly in the nine days leading up to Easter. Then we'll spend 60 days reading through Paul's letters. Then in the summer, we're going to do, this is going to sound crazy, we're going to do a hundred days reading through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So we're going to slowly read through those books. Um, Then, when that's done, we'll have a couple of weeks reading through the wisdom books of the Bible, and then two months reading through the major prophets, which are uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel again, you know, you've read these, uh, and that'll take us through the beginning of Advent. So, oh, I'm sorry, it's it's not 60 days at the beginning of the year for the gospel, it's 90 days to read through the gospels at the beginning of the year. So we'll get to do a nice slow read through the gospels. Um... And, and what I like about these plans is they give you more time to really um, meditate on what you're reading and, and focus on, you know, you've, now you've read the whole thing, you have everything in context, now you can kind of go back and sort of slowly work your way through um, what I think are probably the high points of the gospel, probably the most important texts 
that, that we'll find in there, um, you know, between the Gospels and the Torah and Paul's letters and the wisdom literature uh, and the major prophets, you get all the major texts that influence and shape Christian thought and theology uh, for, throughout history. Uh, the, these will help. So these are good texts for us to slowly read through and, and, and sort of absorb deeply. So that's for next year. I'm really excited. For the, the end of this year, you're going to be reading through the book of Revelation, and I'm really excited about it because I'm going to preach on Revelation during Advent. Um, and people, I've done this before. People give me crazy looks when I say I'm going to preach on Revelation during Advent. But here's the thing. Revelation is the most Christmassy book of the Bible, and if you want to find out why, you're going to have to come to church all through Advent. But I love Revelation. People always... People don't like to teach on it because it's a difficult book and people don't like to read it because it's a weird book. But but I love to teach on it precisely because it is so difficult and it's so weird and people struggle with it so, so much. And there is, um, you can do a lot of harm if you teach on Revelation poorly, but I don't teach on it poorly, so you're welcome. Um, I, I love it. It's a great book. Um, and, and, and in all honesty, what, I'll, what I'm probably going to do for December, because it's so, there's just so much going on in Revelation I'm probably going to preach on it on Sundays, and I will probably actually teach on it in the podcast midweek as well, because there is a lot going on. I want to unpack it. I want to help you understand some of the weirder imageries that's going on there. It's it's this book. It's an apocalypse, which is already a difficult genre of literature for us to follow along and understand. We don't have anything comparable in our modern literary world, um, and it's so full of symbolism, and it's it's this mix of apocalypse and prophecy and it's a it's also a letter, um, and so it can be difficult to follow along with what's going on. Um, but once you begin to see what what John is writing in that book, you begin to understand that this is this is the great glorious conclusion to the story, and there is a little bit of of foretellings of the future in there, but it's all highly symbolic and, and uses a lot of imagery and metaphor. There's some bits in there that are talking very much to the churches of Paul, of John's lifetime and the problems that they were going to deal with, and we can learn from those things. Um, there's a lot going on in Revelation, and I'm really, really excited uh, to preach on it and to teach on it and to read through it. I like that book. It's, it's just, it's a lot going on. And ultimately, ultimately, Revelation is a book of great beauty, and, and reading it and understanding it should give us nothing but peace and hope and joy. Which, of course, is what you want at Christmas. Um, although, don't worry, on Christmas Eve, I will be preaching out of uh, the Gospel of, of Luke and, and the nativity scene in that book. But I'm also going to throw some revelation in there. It's going to be a lot of fun. So this week's readings, I'm going to go through these really quick because um, it's Thanksgiving week and you all have better things to do than listen to me through a podcast. Um, you're reading in, well, we are reading in Ezekiel. Um, kind of, it's it. You're, I've already talked about this a little bit, okay? Because it's it's you're starting mostly um, this great temple vision that Ezekiel has. And this is, um, I, I was joking with somebody on, on Sunday that I, you know, I could never, I, every time someone asked me to pick a favorite book in the Bible or a favorite passage, I, 
I give a different answer because I never, you know, there's so many that I, I love. I really do struggle to answer that question. But this would rank near the top. This this chunk of Ezekiel from chapter 37, and I think it goes all the way through like 40. So it goes a long way. It's almost to the end of the book. Um, this this really long, detailed vision of of um, of the future temple, the eschatological temple, right? Eschatological is a fun theological word that just means things pertaining to the end of all things, um, the ultimate conclusion to history. And so this is a vision of, of the temple in in the end of what will happen when, well, Ezekiel wouldn't have seen this way, but of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back and the dead are raised and, and heaven and earth are remade. Um, this is his vision of, of what that's going to be like. And so you have this great, beautiful vision of this of this perfectly proportioned temple and the river of life is flowing out of it and it gets deeper and deeper and wider and wider as it goes and all along, all along the banks are these trees that are always always producing fruit the leaves are for healing and wherever the the river of the water of life goes life goes with it it flows into the dead sea the Araba what it's called in the text. That's the Dead Sea. It flows into the Dead Sea and makes the water fresh. But it leaves some of the salt marshes available so that people can still harvest salt, right? Now this is all imagery and metaphor again, but but the it's this imagery of, of life and everything being restored and balanced and it's beautiful. And of course the river of life flows out from the temple, which is where God is. And if you and I have the Holy Spirit living within us, we are the temple. Jesus identifies himself with the temple multiple times in the Gospels. The river of life flows out of Jesus, and because it flows out of Jesus, it flows into us, and it flows through us. You might remember the old song, um, I've got a river of life flowing out of me, makes the lame to walk and the blind to see, opens prison doors, sets the captive free. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. You ever did? I think Emmaus people have heard that one. If you grew up in Methodist churches, you heard that song. Uh, it's an old one, but it's great, and I love it. I love this imagery of the river of life flowing out of God and bringing life into the land and, and restoring and healing and washing away death and pain and suffering. Just a beautiful, beautiful image of what the presence of God does, uh, of, of what we are intended to help God facilitate in this world. And it would have been, for Ezekiel and the people he was sharing these visions with, of course, that would have been a much-needed uh, boost in their, in their morale, right? In their, they're, they're living in exile. Jerusalem has fallen. Things don't look very good for them right now, and now God is telling them, don't worry, because this is my plan for the future. It would have been like a breath of fresh air and hope for them. And it should serve as the same thing for us. The sure and certain knowledge that God is bringing life, that the river of life is flowing out through Jesus into us and out of us. Love it. Beautiful, beautiful image. Um, 
It'll take you a little while to get there. It's a long, long vision that Ezekiel has here of the temple. And the symbolism of it all really has to do with perfection and completeness. Um, that, that's, it's, that's why he goes into all this detail about how long and how wide it is. It's all this imagery and symbolism of, of, perfe- of perfection and completeness and wholeness. Um, so he's, he's seeing a temple that, um, that is in every way superior to the one that they've lost. Because this is, of course, the ultimate final temple. Great stuff. I love Ezekiel. I'm going to real briefly talk about 1 Peter, which is what we're reading in the New Testament right now. Um, it's a short little book. 1 Peter, there's really no reason to doubt that Peter is the real author of this letter, by the way. Um, sometimes you'll read commentaries that cast some doubt on that. There's no real reason to doubt Um and, and in fact, from the very earliest days of the church, people have, have claimed that this was written by Peter um, and that it was written by Peter from Rome. He has this uh, reference in, in the letter to being in Babylon. And throughout the New Testament, um, Babylon is used as sort of a, a metaphor for Rome. You'll see that, by the way, in Revelation when you read it. When they talk about Babylon the Great, they're talking about Rome. Um, because in the Old Testament, of course, Babylon is the great evil empire. And in the New Testament, Rome is the great evil empire. So they use those interchangeably. So um, so in the letter, Peter references being in Rome. So th- this, by the way, ties into the whole idea that Peter was the first bishop of Rome, ergo the first pope in the Catholic Church. Um, Protestants tend to dismiss that kind of stuff, but there is actually good reason to think that Peter really was. Um, he, he did really end up in Rome leading the church there because he sent this letter from Rome. Um, and he's writing to uh, the Jews in the diaspora. The diaspora is, is the term we use to, um, you know, to refer to the Jews who have left the, the province of Judea and Palestine. Because um, in AD 70, well, I guess a couple of years before that, the Jews rebel against the Roman Empire. And if you If you can think back into the spring when we were reading through the gospel, I told you Jesus is constantly warning the Jewish people against this. All his, all his warnings about the death and destruction that's going to come about, about um, the, the walls of Jerusalem being torn down about the violence that's going to fall on the Jewish people. Those are all warnings about what's going to happen if they choose to rebel against Rome again. They are not apocalyptic warnings about the end times. Absolutely not. They are talking about he is trying to desperately warn the people of Jerusalem against rebelling against Rome. And they don't listen to him, of course, and they do rebel against Rome. Um, And uh, it goes terribly, terribly, terribly. They are crushed. Rome, Rome is absolutely ruthless when it crushes rebellions. And so uh, the bloodshed is immense. Uh, and, and the temple is destroyed completely by the Roman Empire in AD 70. And then they're kicked out of all of them or are forcibly removed from the Promised Land. The Jewish people are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. That's the diaspora. They are, they are forcibly resettled in other parts of the Roman Empire. So he's writing to Jews in the diaspora. Most likely he's writing to Jewish Christians in the diaspora, although 
Remember, Peter was himself a faithful Jew. He considered himself the apostle to the Jews, along with uh, James, the brother of Jesus. And so we don't know. You know. It's possible he's writing to people, to Jews who have not yet converted to Christianity yet, in addition to the Jews who are uh, already following Christ. Either way, the main point of the letter is to encourage the readers to grow in their faith and to trust in God in the midst, in the midst of suffering. And this is a theme of the New Testament that does not get enough uh, attention in the modern Western church, that so much of it is focused on, even in the midst of suffering, remain faithful. Even when it doesn't seem like God is giving you any reason to be faithful, you better stay faithful. Some of that is, is, is simply because we in the modern church don't suffer nearly as much as, um, as other people do in, in the rest of the world. And we don't suffer nearly as much as uh, Christians have in the past. And, you know, thanks be to God for that. <laughs> um, but it does mean that often when we hit difficult moments in life that we really struggle. We really struggle to remain faithful in those moments. We ask, we ask these questions of like, you know, how, how could a good God allow this to happen? If God loves me, why is he letting this happen to me? And I think it's good to recognize that Christians have always asked those questions. And the answer in the early church was not, well, have you prayed about it? It wasn't, they didn't say, well, did you pray enough? Did you pray more? They didn't, they didn't ask questions about how sinful you might have been. Instead, when they encountered suffering, they looked to Jesus, who also suffered. That was their answer. Yes, you're suffering, but so did Jesus. And when we suffer, we are in some way participating in his ministry of suffering and sacrifice. Very, very different from how the modern world approaches it, especially in Christianity. And that's the thought I'm going to leave you with for Thanksgiving. Isn't that great? Aren't you so happy? Um, one last note, by the way. Several people in the last week have, have come to me to talk about how they're so sad that they <laughs> they feel guilty buying chocolate now. Um, and good, you should. Um <laughs> Um, you know, I, I did make a point of saying it's, it's more complex than, than just don't buy chocolate because it's made with slave labor. Um, I just wanted to get you thinking, and I, I, I'm glad to, to see that it is getting you to think. There are plenty of examples like that, by the way. You know, um, um, For instance, if you buy limes or avocados that are harvested in Mexico, our, the odds are very good that... Um, that the, the orchards where those are being grown are owned by the drug cartels. They, they've taken over a lot of the uh, produce growing, especially things like limes and avocados that they can export and make a lot of money off of. Now, does that mean you should boycott those things? No, because if you do, the only people who suffer are the farmers who are growing them, who are just trying to make a living in a difficult world. The, the the list here is like endless. I mean, you got to think. I mean, we're all probably wearing clothes, some article of clothing that was made uh, using labor practices we would not approve of. If you own a smartphone, 
which all of you do, um, guess what? You've got a, a piece of technology that was manufactured most likely under very poor, dangerous working conditions by underpaid workers. If it's an iPhone, which is what most of us have, right, that's usually made in China. We ought to all have some ethical issues with buying products made in that country. And of course, if we don't buy them, then right, it's the workers who suffer. Here's a, here's a really tricky one for you. Something like 90% or more of all Bibles in the world are printed in China, which is a country that oppresses and persecutes Christians. Bibles are being made in a country that persecutes Christians. And that doesn't mean don't go out and buy a Bible. <laughs> you might not have much of a choice. There's just not that many people printing Bibles outside of China. And the ones that are printed outside of China, by the way, are very expensive. So when I say things like that, I'm not trying to you know, make you feel guilty or tell you you can't ever buy this product again. But I do want... I do think it's good for Christians to be aware of things like that, to be aware of, of um, how the products that we use and love are being made, and to seriously think about the, the choices we make about how we spend our money, not just, you know, we, we, when we talk about this so often, we just boil it down to how much are you giving to charity and how much are you giving to churches, but I do think we have a responsibility to think about um, which which manufacturers are we supporting? Is our money, uh, you know, how 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 much are we contributing to the suffering of the poor by supporting certain companies? And and it's a very complex issue. And I, I think the reality is there's virtually no way for us to completely avoid buying products or services from companies that don't have particularly good human rights records. I mean, Lord knows we all buy stuff off Amazon and their employees are treated horribly. Uh, the stories out of their warehouses are the stuff of nightmares. Uh, but I still use Amazon. I know you do. You know, we, we don't necessarily bear responsibility for what these companies are doing. And in some cases, we don't have much of a choice but to buy that product. And there are lots of ways in which we probably are spending money on products wh where somewhere down the line there is something profoundly unethical going on in the manufacture of that product and we don't, we'll don't we never know about it. Luckily for us, God does not expect perfection. Luckily for us, our sins are forgiven. And who knows, maybe the best thing you can do is simply pray. Pray for the people who are being forced to work in poor conditions. Pray for people who are um, effectively forced into slavery. Pray for the people who are who are the ones doing that to others. Pray that they would encounter Jesus and have a change of heart. You know, we look out at the world and there's so much uh, horrible stuff going on. And often, we, I think we do genuinely forget in the moment that God is king and that God's way of conquering evil is not our way. Uh, I'm, I'm deeply disturbed by a lot of what the Chinese Communist Party does. Uh, it, it, it worries me greatly that that particular 
group of people have so much influence and power in the world, they are a grave, grave evil. Far and away, the most evil regime the world has seen, uh, I think, since Nazi Germany. I would rank them as far worse than Soviet Russia, far more insidious, far more dangerous to the rest of the world. They've committed genocide, and we've all looked the other way because we're afraid of angering them. Somehow, someway, they've got a seat on the UN Human Rights Council as they were committing genocide. It, it, no, one, no other regime in history has been that profoundly evil while we've all looked the other way, except for the Nazis. And, of course, we ended up going to, well, they started the war. So that worries me greatly. It, it deeply troubles me. And what brings me hope about that situation is not the thought that perhaps we could go to war with them and, and beat them or the thought that perhaps economic sanctions will force them to change their ways. What brings me hope is knowing that the Chinese church is growing explosively. The Holy Spirit is doing amazing things in the, the underground house churches of China. There's a very real chance that the Chinese underground church is the largest church in the world, the most rapidly growing church. We have no idea. We have no data on their numbers, but there's a real possibility that that's true. And see, that's how God is going to topple the Chinese Communist Party. That's how he's going to do it. It's how he toppled the Roman Empire, the, the evil regime, at least, that, that led it for so long, through the growth of the church. It's going to happen in China, too. It's not, the outcome is not in doubt. They cannot defeat God. They're already trying and they're already losing. There will come a day when the Chinese Communist Party falls. Not because of military might, not because of economic power, but because of the power and presence of God. Because of the people of God who are so dedicated to him. And that's true for all, all the, the things in the world that bother us. That's true for slave labor as they, as they work to harvest chocolate. Most of that happens in Africa, and, by the, and Africa is where the church is also growing explosively. So I think we can rely on the church there, supported by our prayers, to overcome such evil practices. It will happen. We are not, you know, we... we we do have that responsibility to make choices that reflect the love of God into the world. But we also have to do so knowing that, that the Holy Spirit is present and active worldwide. He is, he is working against evil worldwide. That's what gives us hope. And if you need something to be thankful for this Thanksgiving, be thankful for that. Be thankful for the sure and certain knowledge that God is at work in the world today. Amen.